Hello, everyone, and welcome to the April 4th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Brad Hutchins with Omega Health System. Let's get started with our litigation report. A new U.S. Supreme Court case continues a national policy of drug pricing secrecy, and this contributes to a problem in the workers' compensation community over the methods used to calculate the payment to pharmacies for drugs under the official medical fee schedule. The OMFS payment for pharmaceuticals is based on a benchmark price called the Average Wholesale Price, or AWP. This price is set by the drug manufacturer, is not really the actual wholesale price despite the misleading name of Average Wholesale Price. The two largest publishers of AWP values are First Data Bank and Metaspan. There has been litigation over the validity of the published AWP, and currently there is no acceptable alternative for claims administrators to use to set this base price. As funny as it may seem, claims administrators must pay for, pay for pharmaceuticals based upon a formula that uses the so-called average wholesale price published by drug makers without a confidence that the AWP is an authentic number. Things did not get better when the U.S. Supreme Court sided with drug manufacturers to continue to keep the price they charge for the federal government for drugs a secret. The U.S. Supreme Court case of Austria USA versus Santa Clara County was filed by the County of Santa Clara, who operates several hospitals and clinics that are partly federally funded. In 2005, the county filed a civil lawsuit against Astra and eight other pharmaceutical companies alleging they were overcharging the county for drugs. The case was based upon federal law, Section 340B of the Public Health Services Act, which imposes ceilings on prices drug manufacturers may charge the county. The ceiling price program is superintended by agencies of the Federal Department of Health and Human Services and is tied to the much larger Medicaid drug rebate program. Drug manufacturers must enter into a standardized pricing agreement with HHS. The pricing depends on a manufacturer's average and best prices as defined by legislation and regulation. Manufacturers submit the relevant data to HHS on a quarterly basis so that they can establish drug pricing. The county sought compensatory damages against the drug manufacturers for breach of this pricing contract, claiming they were overcharged under this regulatory scheme. A federal district court in California dismissed the complaint and concluded that the pricing agreement conferred no enforceable rights on the county. Even if they were overcharged, the law does not provide the county a remedy. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals reversed and held that while the county has no right to sue under the statute, they could proceed against drug manufacturers as third-party beneficiaries of the pricing agreement. The Ninth Court Circuit reasoned that suits like the county's would spread the enforcement burden instead of placing it entirely on the government. The U.S. Supreme Court reversed the Ninth Circuit and held that the county does not have a right to sue these drug makers. Congress vested authority to oversee compliance with the program in HHS and assign no enforcement role to the county or anyone else. One of the reasons given by the Supreme Court for the reversal was that the pricing statute prohibits HHS from disclosing pricing information that could reveal the prices a manufacturer charges the government for its drugs. As a result of this decision, the so-called average wholesale price, or AWP, which we use in the OMFS formula to make payments drug makers will be more obscure and far more difficult, if not impossible, to verify. 
Claims administrators are left with no alternative but to take the word of the drug makers for this important pricing information. Another bad faith claim against the State Compensation Insurance Fund was upheld in a new court of appeal decision. Edward Carey Construction Company alleged that it obtained a workers' compensation insurance policy from the state fund. During the policy period, its employee, Edward Carey, sustained a work-related injury. When the employer notified the fund of the injury, Skiff asserted that the policy had been canceled and was not in effect. The employer obtained a ruling through binding arbitration that its insurance policy with Skiff was in full force and effect at the time of Carey's injury. The employer then sued the fund, alleged it incurred damages for employee wages and medical expenses of at least $250,000 and attorney's fees. In its, in its reply to the lawsuit, Skiff focused on the fact that the injured worker was the owner of the insured construction company. Skiff asserted all claims were within WCAB's jurisdiction and to the extent the employer voluntarily paid benefits to their injured worker, its remedy was to request a credit under Labor Code Section 4909. The Superior Court sustained the state fund's demurrer and dismissed the employer's complaint. The Court of Appeal reversed the dismissal in the unpublished opinion of Edward Carey Construction Company versus State Compensation Insurance Fund. On appeal, the employer said that the law is well established that employer can sue its workers' compensation insurance carrier for breach of contract and the implied covenant of good faith and fair dealing. The employer relied on the 1993 case of Security Officers Service versus State Compensation Insurance Fund and the 1998 case of McGregor Yacht Corporation versus State Compensation Insurance Fund. Under the principles of these earlier cases, the employer's allegations were held to be sufficient to state claims against the carrier. The court concluded that none of these cases remotely suggests an employer's legal rights in connection with its workers' compensation insurance policy depend on the company's size and that a small company's separate legal existence ceases if the injured employee happens to be a principal or owner. The Court of Appeal ruled on a case that approves of the expansion of the power press exception to the workers' compensation exclusive remedy to include a loss of consortium claim by an injured employee's spouse. Here is what happened in the published opinion of Lafiel Manufacturing Company versus the Superior Court of Los Angeles County. O'Neill Watrous was injured operating a swagging machine while working for Lafiel Manufacturing Company. He alleged that this swagging machine was a power press machine within the definition of labor code section 4558, which allows the employee to file a civil suit against the employer. Watrous and his spouse therefore filed a lawsuit against Lafiel seeking damages for a violation of labor code section 4558 and for negligence, products liability, and loss of consortium. Labor Code Section 4558 provides an exception to the workers' compensation exclusive remedy for employees injured as a result of the employer knowingly having removed or having failed to install a point of operation guard on a power press machine. The Superior Court overruled the employer's demurrer and concluded that Watrous pled facts to support the, the causes of action he filed against the employer and also that his spouse may properly assert a claim for loss of consortium. In the published opinion of Lafiel Manufacturing Company versus the Superior Court of Los Angeles County,
the Court of Appeal reversed and sustained the demurrer as to the negligence and products liability causes of action without leave to amend. The language of Section 4558 reflects the legislature's careful drafting of the terms triggering the application of the statute. Suits based upon negligence and strict liability require a lesser standard of proof than this statutory exception. The court noted that the employee's causes of action for negligence and products liability were bootstrapped and do not meet the highlighted pleading standards of the power press exception. The only viable theory of recovery Watrous asserts in the, in the complaint is the power press exception in section 4558. Thus, the trial court erred and should have sustained Lafille's demure to the negligence and products liabilities claim. The court allowed the loss of consortium claim if the employee is able to establish his power press injury. The court rejected the employer's argument that allowing a loss of consortium claim will cause further expansion to the statutory exception. And now our fraud report. Three former employees of TriStar, the TPA of workers' compensation claims for Los Angeles County, and their wives pled guilty to multiple counts of grand theft and claims administrator adjuster fraud. Former claims examiner Christian Ramirez pled guilty to one count each of false and fraudulent claim and claims adjuster fraud and was sentenced to two years in state prison. His wife, Sandra Orozco, pled guilty to one count each of grand theft and theft by extortion and served 17 days in county jail and was ordered to do 200 hours of community service. Hugo Ramirez, his brother and also a former claims examiner for TriStar, pled guilty to one count of a false and fraudulent claim and two counts of claims adjuster fraud and was sentenced to three years, four months in state prison. Their father, Javier Ramirez, a former data entry clerk for TriStar, pled guilty to one count each of claims adjuster fraud and grand theft and was sentenced to one year in county jail and three years of felony probation. His wife, Maria Ochoa, pled guilty to one count of grand theft. She served 178 days in county jail. Dominique Boudreau, wife of Hugo Ramirez, pled guilty last November to one count each of claims adjuster fraud, theft by extortion, and filing a false tax return. She will be sentenced on May 10th. Boudreau is expected to be sentenced to three years of felony probation and 200 hours of community service. All defendants are ordered to pay restitution to Los Angeles County. The loss is in excess, of, in excess of $1 million. The investigation found that the three male defendants referred transportation and investigative business to four companies, Transco Transportation, owned by Dominique Boudreau, Universal Transportation Services, owned by Christian Ramirez, Paramount Transportation, owned by Maria Ochoa, and On-Call Investigations, owned by Sandra Orozco. These companies would bill Los Angeles County for services not rendered or would subcontract out the services, submit bills higher than the industry standard, and then pocket the difference. And in financial news, a new CWCI study confirms that medical costs are now above pre-reform levels. Workers' compensation medical expenditures fell sharply immediately after the enactment of the 2002 to 2004 reforms, but that decline was short-lived. And after rising steadily since 2005, average payments are back above pre-reform levels, according to a new CWCI study. The Institute examined data from more than half a million California workers' compensation indemnity claims. 
The results reinforce the findings of a 2010 Institute study showing a steady escalation in costs from 2005 through most of recent measurements. Medical treatment remains the dominant medical expense component in workers' compensation, accounting for about 73 cents out of every dollar paid in first-year medical expenses. That is down from about 85 cents out of every dollar paid in 2002. However, this decline coincided with the dramatic increase in payments for medical case management and cost control triggered by the 2002 to 2004 reforms. Expenses for items such as medical bill review, mandatory utilization review, and access fees to medical provider networks climbed from 6.5% to 16.9% of the first year paid medical dollar between 2002 and 2009. And now our medical report. A new study shows that experts who write medical treatment guidelines may have a conflict of interest. Treatment guidelines are one of the tools used to contain medical costs. California now uses the Medical Treatment Utilization Schedule, or MTUS, which is based in part on the ACOM guideline and part on the chapters written by the DWC. The MTUS is presumed correct, but can be rebutted by other peer-reviewed, evidence-based guidelines. There are hundreds of treatment guidelines in circulation, many posted on the federal government's website, guideline.gov. But a new study suggests that some of these published guidelines may be biased. Researchers reported in a study published in the Archives of Internal Medicine that half of the experts involved in writing recent treatment guidelines for heart patients reported a conflict of interest. Even though the experts are disclosing their ties to companies that produce heart drugs and devices, the phenomenon is important because the guidelines they produce are used to help train new doctors. Guidelines can have a long-lasting impact on the way patients are treated. Since guidelines are so important, the process for producing them is also important. They need to be above suspicion. Of the nearly 500 people studied, 56% reported a conflict of interest. The most common conflicts included being a consultant or serving on a company advisory board, followed by getting a research grant, taking money for serving on a speaker's bureau, and owning stock. This study is among the first to look at the issue of conflicts among experts who write clinical practice guidelines. Commentators on this study say that the findings raise disturbing questions about the independence and reliability of these practice guidelines. And in other news, the CWCI has announced the election of its 2011 Board of Directors. William Mudge, President and Chief Executive Officer of CompWest Insurance Company, has been elected Chairman of the Board. Tom Rowe, President of the State Compensation Insurance Fund, will serve as the Institute's Vice Chair. Also elected to the Board of Directors were Richard C. Zolte from ACE USA, Matthew L. Sather from CNA, Robert L. King from Fireman's Fund Insurance Company, Rosemary Favier from Preferred Employers Insurance Company, Richard W. Selinger from Seabright Insurance Company, Joseph A. Ney from Springfield Insurance Company, Vernon Steiner from Zenith Insurance Company, and Jeffrey Jensen from Zurich, North America. CWCI members include 24 insurer groups composed of nearly 200 underwriting companies that write and service more than 80% of California statewide workers' compensation premium 
as well as 23 of the largest public and private self-insured employers in the state. The 100-year anniversary of the Tragic Triangle Fire marks the birth of workers' compensation nationwide. The Triangle, the triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire in New York City occurred on March 25, 1911. This fire was the deadliest industrial disaster in the history of the city of New York and resulted in the fourth highest loss of life from an industrial accident in U.S. history. The fire caused the deaths of 146 garment workers who either died from the fire or jumped to their deaths. The Triangle Waste Company, a factory occupied the 8th, 9th, 10th floors of a building in Greenwich Village area of New York City. The factory produced women's blouses known as shirtwaists. The factory normally employed about 500 workers, mostly young immigrant women, who worked nine hours a day on weekdays, plus seven hours on Saturdays. On March 25, 1911, a fire flared up in the northeast corner of the eighth floor. Many of the workers could not escape the building because the managers had locked the doors to the stairwells and exits. A large crowd of bystanders gathered on the street witnessing 62 people jumping or falling to their deaths from the 8th, 9th, and 10th floors of the burning building. The po political aftermath of the fire led to the birth of workers' compensation systems across the nation and legislation requiring improved factory safety standards. In 1911, Wisconsin became the first state in the union to adopt a true workmen's compens compensation law. Workers' compensation was called the great trade-off. Employers were required to provide coverage for everyone and employees gave up their right to sue their employers for damages. The next year, 1912, four more states passed workers' compensation laws and by 1913, eight more states adopted legislation, including California, with the passage of the Boynton Act. In 1914, the state of New York passed a workers' compensation law and in July 1914, the New York State Insurance Fund began offering workers' compensation insurance. A coalition of preservation organizations, historians, artists, and labor activists came together to commemorate the centennial of the fire. That's all of our news this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or iPod by searching for WorkComp Academy in the iTunes Store. Again, I'm Brad Hutchins with Omega Health Systems. Thanks for joining us today, and drop by again next week for more news.